Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. My name is Bob Kaler, and I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald, and we've been talking about seminary as we've been getting ready for today's special edition of the podcast as we interview Dr. Tim Tennant from Asbury. Stephanie, you are currently a seminary student. Tell yes. us about what you are doing and about, because you're doing it in a different way than the old school way where we, <laughs> back in the day when I did it in the early 90s, we packed up and moved and right. had to be on campus in the days before the internet, in the days before computer laptops, in the days uh, when uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> But, but you, are, you are engaging in a different sort of seminary experience. So tell us about that a little bit as we get ready for, for Dr. Tennant. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I love about Asbury Theological Seminary is that they really have kept up with the times, the, the growing need, the changing needs of those of us who are working full-time, also pastoring churches, and we also need to go to seminary. And so one of the things that I get to do is I get to do most of my classes online, which has been a great experience. I've had professors at Asbury who are living in Australia. I've had professors from Africa. I've had professors from Puerto Rico all over the world. It's been an amazing experience, but then they also offer us the opportunity to do hybrid courses around the United States. And so uh, the place that I visit pretty regularly is at Asbury United Methodist Church in Tulsa, where they have designed a hybrid course there, courses that we can go and take so that we still get that residential type feeling, but it makes it much more possible for those of us who live around the country to get a master in divinity degree. So it's been really a great experience. I've loved every minute of it. Things are so much more accessible now. Uh, Asbury just announced this past week that, uh, that there'll be a new extension site opening up here in Colorado Springs, which we're very excited about here in the West. And uh, we look forward to that. And uh, so if you're thinking about seminary, if you feel like God may be calling you, there's some great options now for you where you don't have to pack up and move to go off (laughs) to seminary, but you can, you can connect. And one of the people who's been at the center of this is our guest today. So Stephanie, why don't you introduce him? Yes, absolutely. We are so excited to introduce to you all Dr. Tim Tennant, who is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary and has written a new book entitled For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body, which will be published by Zondervan and Seedbed in October, which I am so excited about that. So Dr. Tennant, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Good to be here. Good. Good. We're so glad to have you here. So we want to jump right into asking you some questions. You know, there's so much that we could talk with you about, including a look at uh, the theological education in the new Methodism, which we really hope will be in a future episode. But your new book seems to be coming at a very important time in the history of our church as we look ahead to the formation of a new traditional Methodist denomination. So tell us a little bit about the creation of this book and why you wrote it. Well, thank you. Um, I, as you know, I've, I've been ordained the Methodist Church now for 35 years. And so my entire ministry has been framed by this conversation in the church and these debates and conversation discussions and endless votes. And we now have had 12 general conference votes, plus the specially called general conference. 13 times we've had uh, global votes about this issue of same-sex marriage, particularly. 
but I, I guess I was struck by the fact over the years watching the whole thing develop that we've never really had a proper conversation about it. Uh, I felt like that we've had a lot of uh, shouting, a lot of argumentation, a lot of things, but we never really had a proper um, conversation about it, which looked at biblical, theological, historical issues. And so I felt like we need to raise the level of conversation about it and just say, what really is at stake and why haven't we uh, discussed it properly? We've done a lot of arguing and shouting, but not a lot of really proper argumentation. Um, I've been influenced a lot by Alistair McIntyre, the Scottish philosopher who, who says the loss of moral argument has left us without a really a proper way to make an argument and to talk about things well as a church. So that was the first reason. Um, the second reason I wrote it was I felt like that we have, whatever we have talked about it, uh, we've made, especially those of us that are traditionalists, we've been framed as saying we're against something rather than what we're for. So we never have really got around to the turning the coin over and saying, well, if we're against same-sex marriage or gender reassignment, whatever, then what, what is it? Why are we against it? Like, what is the real compelling Christian vision to, which calls us forth to, to joyfully embrace? What, what, what is it so great about the Christian vision of the body, et cetera? So I felt like we never really had opportunity to share what we are for, and this book tries to do that. And then uh, thirdly, I, I was really struck by the fact that um, I think we're experiencing the rise of a, um, a kind of a neo-Gnostic view of the body, a, a degrading of the body. And so I feel like the church has been trying to fight, you know, I don't know, endless issues, same-sex marriage, the rise of digital, digital pornography, uh, you know, the, the, uh, our children playing uh, first-person killing video games, uh, doctor-assisted suicide, abortion, uh, you go on and on and on, uh, the justification of women in advertising. There's endless these issues, and it finally dawned on me that really these are not 12 different issues. These are one, this is all about one issue, and that's the Christian view of the body. And so this book is really trying to focus it, saying this is not just one issue, but it's a whole spectrum of issues which are manifesting itself in many different ways. And let's come together and try to see if we can really, really address the central problem, the Christian vision of the body. It's fascinating to me that we've gotten to this point in our culture. I mean, even just thinking about my own lifetime, how things have evolved over a period of time, and I'm in my mid-50s. How did we get to this place of, of the Christian understanding of the body and the cultural understanding of the body being so widely divergent? I mean, I guess they've always been divergent to some degree, but, but especially now. And, and how, do we, how do we look at that and, and understand the, the genesis of what got us here? That's one of the fascinating things that I've seen, even over the course of the history of the United Methodist Church. I mean, we've seen this become more and more of an issue how did we get here? Yes, yeah, a great question. You know, it, uh, people often make the point that the word homosexuality doesn't emerge in the English language. I think it's sometime in the 19th century, um, the modern word. And I, I think it really shows us how dramatically the world has changed from the, the Greco-Roman period, where they had endless, very specific words for endless kinds of sexual activity. And so I think what happened is that uh, this view of the body that we're experiencing now is not new. It's actually very ancient, but the Christian worldview has kept it at bay for centuries. And now with the, um, with the retreat of the Christian worldview, we're seeing the reemergence of uh, what formerly we would call pagan views of the body or non-Christian views of the body. And that's what we're now seeing today. So 
I think it's the reemergence of something. It's not a new thing, but the Christians have forgotten how to de deal with it. Because this issue was the was the dominant theological challenge of the early church in the first, second centuries was Gnosticism. And yet uh, it's been such a long time since we faced it. We're having trouble you know, getting our feet again and how to address it all over again. So I think it's part of it. You know, 11,000 people uh, leave the church every day in the Western world. So, it's, so as every day it goes by, every 24 hour period, there are 11,000 fewer Christians and so that results over time in a dramatic loss of the Christian worldview in a culture. I was reading Nancy Piercy's book on the body, which is also phenomenal. And she talks about some of the cultural influences of people who are long dead, philosophers like Kant, and especially like Freud, who said that, you know, that sexuality is the primary function of our mental apparatus. It's all about sexual fulfillment. And that is the number one thing that people are pursuing. And there was an aha moment as I was reading the book that you said, and this is very key, I think, that one of the key differences is that, is that the body is not merely a biological functional entity, but a theological one. How does that play into our current situation in the culture and in the church? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of, I think, the, the joyful part of the Christian worldview is that we have a very different view of the body so, right, if the body is merely biological and functional, then it becomes a commodity that can be traded and used for however the culture wants to use it, right? But if you have a theological vision of the body, then it becomes, as I use in my book, an icon, a pointer to divine mysteries. So the very fact that the body is, for example, a pointer to the incarnation of Christ, if you have a degraded view of the body, then you can't trust the incarnation. So this is, this is not a minor issue. This is a major issue how Christians view the body. So the culture, for example, just to underscore your point, the culture says, um, you know, that the body uh, can't be trusted, but you always follow your heart. Whereas the Christian worldview said, the heart is deceitful, but your body is trustworthy. So we had a complete reversal of how we understand the deceptive nature of the heart versus the body in modern culture. So um, this is not a new problem. In the scholastic period, they had this, uh, this thing called the, uh, the core infracatus, I'd say, that is the turning the heart inward upon itself. We have this growing sense of uh, self-orientation. Uh, in the popular media, I think in the uh, social media, it's called the, uh, the, the uh, TIO, those that are instantly offended and everything that goes on. And so that mentality... Uh, has created a self-orientation, an, an inward gaze, John Paul II calls it, which the Christians have to blast through and say, no, we're not created for ourselves. That's the only worldview the world can have, is just to see their own self, their own autonomous self in the world. Here you have a vision for us is actually pointing to the incarnation, pointing to the resurrection, pointing to the great divine mysteries. It puts us out of ourselves into a world that's you know needs to be redeemed and saved. And so uh, the, the implications of this are enormous if we view our bodies as theological pointers, not simply biological units uh, or entities. I just think that is huge for us, especially as we're looking at the 
at the current issues that the church is facing. So the book is structured around these seven key building blocks of the theology of the body. And I love this, the seven doctrinal proposals that you make that state what traditional Christianity is for when it comes to the body and sexuality rather than what we are against. So can you give our listeners just a brief overview of those seven building blocks? Sure. Before I do it, let me just say, I, I've been so impressed by the, um, I guess 10 years ago, I read John Paul II's Theology of the Body. It was great. I've read a lot of Christopher West's works, but nobody had actually laid out what the Theology of the Body was, like in any kind of like components. Uh, they were all very conceptual books uh, dealing with a lot of great ideas. And I felt it might be helpful for readers to say, well, what is a theology of the body? You know, we talk about it, but what is it? What does it mean? And what are the components of it? And I want to say up front that I don't think it should be limited to seven. Uh, you could have 10 or 12 or, you know, but I felt like seven was a good starting point for saying these are things that are cr clearly part of the Christian worldview. So the first is the fact that creation is good. Just reaffirming the beauty of creation, that God created the world and therefore our bodies are good. Um, and we have to reestablish the, the doctrine of God as, as the creator. So that's a big part of the, um, the, the, the theology of body. Because uh, today the, the world wants to distrust the body. So a lot of the gender uh, dysphoria is caused by a distrust of the body. Right? You can't trust your biological markers of your own body. That goes back to creation. We're not created good. Uh, second is the point that we already made, which is that the, our bodies are not merely only created by God, but they're created as icons or pointers to deeper spiritual realities. So I said that even at creation, God created us knowing that someday he would send his son into the world to redeem us. Uh, we all believe that. So God is preparing the human body as the perfect receptacle for his someday, his incarnation. We also know that uh, unlike, again, the ancient world, part of the Christian message was that Jesus Christ wasn't just raised spiritually, wasn't just ideas like Rudolf Bultmann, it was actually a bodily, physically resurrection. So therefore, our bodies are pointing to even our own physical uh, resurrection at the end of time, 1 Corinthians 15. So I really emphasize the idea that the body is a spiritual pointer to, that, to deep spiritual mysteries of, of redemption, etc., uh, the third uh, building block is the, the role of Christian marriage, that marriage was created by God, uh, and God created marriage to be a pointer to Christ and the church. And I, I love that passage where Paul is in Ephesians 5 discussing marriage, and he's discussing back and forth about marriage. And then he kind of surprised the reader, uh, I'm speaking of a mystery, the mystery of Christ and the church. So even Paul is showing us that marriage is meant to be this mysterious icon pointing to the great mystery of Christ and his church. Christ doesn't marry himself. He marries another, the church, etc. Uh, the fourth has the reprodu reproducibility, that is childbearing. Uh, as you know, childbearing is under great threat today. Um, uh, marriage is also in decline in the Western world, but so is childbearing. A lot of millennials today don't have children, don't want to have children. And the implications of this are enormous for the, for the culture and for the future of the church. And so I'm really reemphasizing that part of the childbearing is how you come out of your own inward gaze. You know, you're forced to look after another. You're forced to care for another. The, the family is the recreation of the Trinity. It's the, the father, son, child 
I mean, father, mother, child is the same as father, son, spirit. It's kind of an icon of the Trinity itself. And so uh, childbearing is part of God's plan. We get to join him as, a, as co-creators in the world. And so I really bring that out. But also on the next one, uh, the, the fifth one is the particular role of singleness and, uh, and celibacy. Um, I really believe it's important that churches, I think in reaction to the culture, which has lost an emphasis on marriage, and the last issue of CT was on this issue as well, the loss of marriage, a lot of churches have very strong emphases on marriage, which is good. But I think what's happened is a lot of people who are, who are single, they feel like they are left out or their only option is to, uh, you know, they're, they're there to church and there's single gatherings for the purpose of finding, uh, you know, a mate, et cetera. And they often feel like there's the, the role of singleness is not properly appreciated by the church. So I actually put as one of the major building blocks a recovery of what I call the single focused life. Uh, the Bible never used the word singleness. Uh, so single focused life is my word for uh, those people who've already captured uh, the future state of the, the new creation. They've already captured that future vision. It was you know, in heaven, there'll be no marriage or given in marriage. So they're already been married to Christ, married to the church. And it's not simply those who are called the monastic life. The church always had a larger category of those who, in many different ways and vocations, served as, as a single person. And so this... Uh, I've had a lot of feedback when I preached this when these, these sermon, uh, these ideas before, people who are single who felt like they had finally had a theological lens to understand their singleness. So it's something that I think is important. Uh, the sixth one uh, has to do with how our bodies become what I call mobile temples in the world. And that's to say that our bodies are meant to be representative of Christ in the world. And I, I try to revisit the sacraments uh, to say that I think in present theology, we have seen the sacraments as something that God does for us rather than how God uses the sacraments to transform us for the world. So the purpose of uh, our being transformed is that we might be a transformed agent in the world. And I love uh, Sandy Richter's um, another seedbed author, uh, Sandy Richter's definition of the church, which I think this is my favorite definition of the church. She says the church is uh, the outpost of the new creation in Adam's world. And it's a great way of picturing it, that we are meant to be an outpost. Every church, think about today with all the racial unrest and the and protest, oh, and rightfully so over George Floyd, et cetera. The church should be the agent of healing for every community in America. The church is already there in their communities. What an opportunity for us to be the living representation of reconciliation, of healing, of grace, all of that. So I really emphasize how we are to embody the redemptive life. We should give people a foretaste of what is to come in the present by seeing that things that can't happen in the culture do in fact happen in the church. In the last one, um, is just the, the role of how our daily tasks uh, become markers of God's presence in the whole of life, the so-called quotidian mysteries of life. Uh, I look at things as normal as, you know, uh, washing dishes, making up your bed. Um, I've been really inspired by the books on this theme in recent years, um, taking out the trash, you know, uh, 
shoveling, if you're in the snow area, shoveling snow was more my jobs when I was in Massachusetts. Uh, those are all things that we do regularly. And seeing how God uh, invades that sacramentally in our lives uh, is really powerful. I try to bring out how uh, our bodies are what does all of these things. Because every one of the means of grace that Wesley brings out, everyone is done in and through the body. There's no way God communicates his, his grace to us except in some way through bodies. And so we need to recapture that. So I jokingly say that the theology of body uh, begins with uh, God creating the whole world and ends with somebody changing diapers. But I think <laughs> that's kind of the point, isn't it? That the, this, our bodies actually encompass the whole of uh, the redemptive process and um, so the, this book tries to really kind of run the whole gamut of how our bodies are central to God's purposes. Yeah, you mentioned Tish Harrison Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I found profoundly helpful, just thinking about everything in life being sacramental in some sense. And, and as I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me in your explanation of the theolo theology of marriage specifically is the sacramental character of it and that it is a holy mystery that points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And as I have done weddings over the course of 26 years of being ordained, every time I do one, I always wonder if somehow we Methodists, Protestants in general have missed the boat when it comes to seeing marriage as a sacramental act. And, and maybe one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is that we've not articulated that mystery in a sacramental way. I mean, I've sat with couples in premarital counseling and tried to explain the theology of it, and they're all stuck on hearts and flowers and how many people are going to be at the reception and all of that kind of stuff. They focus on the fantasy more than the ceremony. How can we recapture a practical theology of marriage, even if it doesn't rise to the level of a sacrament? So how do we elevate it somewhat as we go forward, because clearly we have to do a lot of remedial work, not only with the culture, but within the church on, on marriage itself. That's a great question, Bob. And I have a lot of feelings about that. I, I go into the book about the meaning of the, of the word sacrament, which as you know, just means, you know, uh, a, a holy mystery, you know, a sacer, Macedonium. So I do think that maybe we uh, overly, um, shy away from the use of the word sacrament um, in that sense. So I, in my view, I think it goes back to the 16th century. I think the, the 16th century was so uh, focused and rightfully so at the time on recovery of Christocentric theology that they asked the question, what are the sacraments that Christ instituted? And of course, the answer which they gave, which was a true answer, was he only gave two, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that has therefore been the Protestant practice. But I think the, the question that Wesley answered, um, asked a little more profoundly in the, in the 18th century was to say, well, um, was Christ the only one to institute sacraments? You know, could there be more than that? Is it, in other words, is it Trinitarian? And I think that the answer is, is, the, is Trinitarianism, to say the Father, Son, and Spirit, all three institute holy mysteries. Now, Wesley, I think, wisely decided to not use the word sacrament, but just use the phrase means of grace, which is perfectly fine with me. But the Father clearly institutes uh, marriage in the Garden of Eden, and then a whole range of things like, you know, ordination, 
that the Holy Spirit uh, institutes or healing, for example, uh, set aside for, for service. You look at Acts uh, 6, where you have the, the uh, deacons set aside and they lay hands and pray for them. Acts 13, where they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas to go out in ministry. Uh, you have uh, James 5, uh, laying on of hands to pray for who will be healed with anointing of oil. There are clearly some other really remarkable moments in the New Testament, which they're just not focused on Christ, but they're focused on the larger work of the Spirit. So I think there's a lot to be done in Trinitarian theology to fully capture a lot of this. Um, I've told you, it doesn't matter to me whether you call marriage a sacrament or not. It's at least should be reviewed, referred to as a means of grace or, or a holy mystery. And I think in that sense, uh, recapturing that would be really, really helpful. I make the point in the book, uh, Bob, that when we talk about the, the problem with marriage today in terms of some of the, the issues, I argue that the problems we have today are rooted back in the very thing you, you said, was that, that marriage has largely been given up as a Christian act by the church. And the church has basically accepted the world's definition of marriage, which is commodification. It's very much transactional, and it can be easily discarded. And so the, the, the church does not have a covenantal view of marriage. So until we recover a proper covenantal view of marriage, then of course a lot of things come out of that. Because you say, well, why wouldn't, you know, if, if it's about personal happiness and two people are happy, why, why would the church say no? That's pretty much largely the argumentation around same-sex marriage in the Methodist church today is that who are we to deny two people that are happy and they seem to be getting along well? Because they've already given up on the fact that marriage is not about personal happiness, though it's never less than that, but it's also about a covenantal, iconic reflection of divine mysteries. So we have a lot of work to do to recover that, and I argue my, in the book the need to establish catechesis that would um, recover a proper definition of marriage in, in the life of the church and not let mystery no uh, romance novels and the movie industry and all of that to co-opt a Christian view of marriage. There's a missional aspect to it, too. I mean, I love Sandy Richter's definition that the church is the outpost of a new creation in Adam's world. And I was reading Alexander Schmiemann uh, for The Life of the World, where he talks about the Orthodox marriage ceremony, where they actually bring crowns and place them on the bride and groom, that they are kings and queens to each other, uh, sort of that original kind of royal image of God in, in creation, that they're that they're coming together vocationally, not just, not just uh, romantically. I think that's powerful stuff. And, and you talk a lot about that in the book, which I find, which I find really helpful. It is. I love the fact that the Orthodox, uh, they're the main inspiration, I think, for seeing the sacraments missionally. And that to me is their great, their great contribution to the church is seeing the sacraments are themselves missional. And we tend to see the sacraments for us rather than for the world. And they do that with marriage and with, with all of the, uh, their mysteries. I love how you are helping us to have just a deeper view of marriage and taking uh, what culture says marriage is and contrasting that with a Christian worldview 
connected to marriage. I just think that is so important. So as we look at the current crisis of the United Methodist Church, I feel like a lot of the press goes to the issues surrounding LGBTQ persons and same-sex marriage and ordination, but it seems that there are plenty of sexual brokenness to go around. So some of it is enhanced by the virtual worlds in which we live and move, things that we see online. So how might a good and positive theology of the body work to heal some of that brokenness for people that are dealing with all kinds of confusion and conflict over the body and sexuality? Yeah, that's exactly the point. I think we have, the book tries to deal with a much larger kind of issues. I didn't actually deal with abortion in the book because we have so many good books on that issue, but I did deal with a lot of issues, uh, particularly the, the role of uh, social media and how social media has changed the view of the self. I drew upon a lot of the work of, uh, of John Jefferson Davis and what he actually argues that the digital self is almost a a new ontology. It's, it's become very, very powerful. And so we shouldn't uh, underestimate some of these forces that are at, at, at bay. I think that the yeah, Methodist point in terms of the press, I think that's important to point out though that um, the UMC, the focus on homosexuality is not because the traditionalists have made a big point of that issue. Sometimes we're, we're often accused of that, like why are you not focusing on other sins in the Bible. We get that all the time. But in fact, this is the only sin uh, on any of the sin list that they have taken off of the sin list and said, we're going to now make it into a sacrament. And therefore, the church has raised their hands saying, wait a minute, this is, this is unprecedented. So in some ways, they're the ones that have tried to um, really do something which has never been done in the history of the world, which I, I guess, in other words, if they were to make say, uh, you know, exorbitant usury is uh, now going to be made into a great act, holy act, we would raise our hand on that. So if you were to talk to uh, people in the UMC broadly, I think you would say, if you ask them about like violent first person killing video games, I presume most people would probably be upset about it, concerned about it. If you ask about, you know, the rise of digital pornography, most would probably find it very concerning, et cetera, or the objectification of women in advertising. I spent a whole chapter on how women are advertising used to shame women. I think that most of the church, the UMC would agree that those are real social problems. So a lot of the theology of the body we have agreement on, but I think when it comes to this particular issue, it's been taken out uh, and out of its context and they've tried to make it into a sacrament. So to me, it's, it deserves the emphasis it's been deserving on. What really surprised me in, in the, the the Portland conference, when in Portland, um, when they made the decision to establish the uh, the way forward, you know, committee and all of that, which goes on for several years, they uh, the original discussion was about same-sex marriage. But when they actually published the Episcopal letter about it, they said LGBTQ plus, or might have just said LGBTQ. I'm not sure if the plus was there, but it doesn't matter. The point is is that even if you say just LGBT, it raises a lot of new issues that have nothing to do with sexuality per se, because you have issues about gender dysphoria, for example, or uh, suddenly now we are now, we have bisexuality brought into it. Bisexuality is a, is a huge, enormous area, which we've not discussed at all as the church. So very quickly, it got brought into a wide range of issues um, after the original discussion. So. I think we have a lot of uh, a lot of work to do to 
recapture why the church was upset about it. It has separated every major nomination. I watched the uh, PCUSA uh, very close at hand when that whole thing happened. Of course, the Lutheran, the ABC, the Episcopalian, now with the ACNA breaking off. So this has happened to every mainline denomination. The UMC is the last one to hold out. I'm very proud of the UMC for that. We've never lost a national vote on it. But I do think, unfortunately, um, we're at the point now where we, we, we have no option but to move to a new, a new place, which is what the whole WCA is helping to lead. And I appreciate your leadership on that. My hope and prayer is that the uh, catechesis becomes a, a great uh, part of the emphasis of the WCA. And that's something we have talked about quite a bit. I chaired the task force on accountable discipleship. And one of the recommendations we made is that we, we establish an actual catechism. And, and you make the point in the book that that catechism should be more than just about the normal things we talk about in our doctrinal statements, but also adding a significant section on catechesis around the body and how we learn and how we teach uh, young people, how we teach people in our own churches. I, I did a, a four-week study on sexuality last October, anticipating General Conference. I read 17 books on the subject. I went up in the mountains for two weeks, one of our church yes. members' cabins. I, I just did nothing but read from all different perspectives. And you could see how things were kind of all over the place. And even those who came from a more traditional perspective did not always have a very systematic or, or grounded way of understanding it. So you talk about making sure that catechism is something that is part of this process, teaching the Christian worldview on the body, sexuality, marriage, that's going to be a tall order in this culture. So what are some ways that we can begin to do that as pastors and churches, as we look toward a new traditional denomination where we want to state what we're for rather than what we're against? Yes, that's a good point. Well, I, I know you've read Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher's work, but I, I think his phrase, I think he coined it, uh, the malaise of transcendence or malaise of eminence. I think that uh, that really does capture the fact that our culture has lost a sense of the transcendent. Uh, therefore, there's a, there's a, we, we live in a culture that's lost and is straying away, and uh, they, they, they lost a touch with the uh, with the transcendent, with the belief in God, with even trust institutions like the church, and therefore there's a fragmentation of meaning, et cetera, that goes on. So the church has to accept the fact that we are now in a post-Christendom context. We, we, we just are. We can't accept the fact, we can't just assume the fact that the Christian worldview is going to be accepted and embraced by the larger society. I worked in India, North India, for no, no less, uh, for years. And in North India, uh, it's very dominant Hindu. And I just understood the fact that as a Christian, I was going to occupy a minority position in a culture that would think that most of what I believed was absolutely crazy. And so I think today, young people growing up in the church, we have for so long assumed kind of a cultural milieu, you know, of a Christendom mentality where the culture more or less reinforced, reinforced Christian values. And we know how the culture domesticated that a lot, but nevertheless, broadly speaking, people knew that, you know, uh, living outside of marriage or having sex out of marriage was wrong or whatever, but now it's all gone. And so therefore the church has to start from scratch with young people 
to insist that we have proper training, teach parents how to train their children to be distinctively Christian in a non-Christian world. That's a very new order for church. In fact, the Protestant world has never known that. Roman Catholic Church has, but the Protestant world has not known that in the Western world. So this is a new development for us. But our brothers and sisters from India and China and other parts of the world can be enormously helpful because they, this is the world they lived in. They lived in it for generations. And so I spent so much time with Indian Christians and they have shown me over and over again that this is a project that can be done. The church can catechize their young people and they can uh, teach them how to specifically deal with a lot of issues. And I think the great thing about theology of the body is that it works so well with traditional catechesis. Because if you think about the, um, Apostles' Creed, for example, um, which has a strong influence on God as creator. There's so many good things that can naturally go into the theology of the body. And so I, in the book, I explain how you can actually do it, work it within an existing kind of normal, like traditional catechesis of, uh, of the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, or you can do it as a separate study, as you, apparently you did, Bob. Those are both great ways to do it, and churches can just figure it out. But I did want to include and Zonovan really was questioning me, like, do you want to include a section like this for pastors and for church leaders? I said, yes, because I felt like pastors need guidance on what do we do? How do we implement this? It's not just ideas. Uh, it's like we have to actually make some real decisions about how we raise up the next generation of Christians, because this is the great project of this new generation, is the rediscovery of biblical Christianity, and we have to help them do that. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Tennant, it is so wonderful to hear your thoughts on this. I'm so excited for your book to come out in October. I know our listeners will be very excited to be getting that as well. And we just want to say thank you for being here with us today. And thank you for your work, not only here in the United States, but literally around the world and for the way that you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. We are very, very grateful for you. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you, and may the Lord bless WCA and all their efforts, and we'll look forward to uh, more time together. The book is titled For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body, coming out in October. Do you have a specific date in October it's coming out at this point? I do not. I do not. Okay. <laughs> so look for it. It's gonna. It, it, it's really a very important book. I, I cannot stress that enough. I think it's going to be hugely helpful for us and framing where we're going and what kind of movement we want to be in the future when it comes to not only our theology, but also our theology of the body and the way that we, we operate. So we thank you, uh, Dr. Tennant, for joining us. I want to remind our listeners that you can email us with your comments or questions at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. We always love to hear from you. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod, and make sure that you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're adding new platforms as they emerge. So make sure you tell people out there about the podcast. We are rapidly gaining a huge audience and we know that that will grow even more as we move toward general conference but we look forward to seeing you next time here on the podcast thanks for joining us for holy conversations mm -hmm.